it was on no other star maps before, and as we know, the only thing new that can really appear in the sky are comets, right? So it must be some kind of comet. Well, he started tracing it night after night and realized that this object, there was no fuzzy coma like you'd expect with a comet, and it wasn't developing a tail like you'd expect with a comet. And after tracking it long enough and tracking the orbit, folks started coming to the realization that this was actually a new planet, not a comet at all, but a whole other member of our solar system as large as any of the other planets we know of. Now, this is a watershed moment. This isn't just finding a new planet, right? This is a moment where there's a sudden change in ideas because until this point, the planets that we had known had been known since ancient times, right? Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, there are no other planets. There's nothing new under the sun, maybe than, other than the occasional comet, which some people still believed was still an atmospheric phenomenon. But at this point, it was an actual new planet. And this was just this watershed moment where suddenly people started finding all kinds of new things, right? In 1801, suddenly we started finding asteroids. 1840s, based actually on some, uh, some perturbations we noticed in Uranus's orbit, it wasn't behaving quite as we would expect it to. They were able to predict uh, where Neptune should appear and then actually observe that location, and lo and behold, it was there. So this generated a whole new planet-finding uh, renaissance. Now, it's interesting because if you go back into the actual star charts that other people had created, it seems that Uranus has actually been seen before. So Flamsteed took it upon himself in, six, in the 1600s, the late 1600s, to start cataloging every star in the sky. And if you look carefully, he's cataloged one star as 34 Tauri, which doesn't actually exist. Turns out he had been seeing Uranus and uh, it had moved over that time, so if you go to that location, you'll just see black sky. But uh, at the time, he believed it was a star when in fact it was a planet. And there's some indication that it goes as far back as Ptolemy. So Ptolemy may have actually even seen this 2,000 years ago when making his star charts. It's possible, naked eye, he actually saw Uranus because ever so slightly, it can, you can see Uranus with the unaided eye. It's incredibly dim and it appears as not descript compared to other stars in the sky, but enough that you can actually see it on a very, very dark night. So what is Uranus actually like? Well, it's a gas giant. It's made of mostly gas. It's not like terrestrial planets like Earth or Mars. There's no surface you can actually stand on per se. It's mostly made of hydrogen and helium, right, gases, you know, similar to Jupiter and Saturn, except it's very cold. As you start going down into the atmosphere, you can imagine the atmosphere getting thicker and thicker till eventually it's thick enough you can swim through it, right? At some point, there is some kind of an ocean, we think. We're not actually sure because, you know, we've only sent one spacecraft to Uranus and, you know, it just flew by, it didn't orbit. So a lot of these are guesses based on just what we know the physics should do, but we think Deep down, there is some kind of ocean. It's probably mixed with ammonia, so some kind of weird ion stuff. So ammonia, the same thing you have you know, under your sink at home for cleaning. Um, there's many ices as well, but they're not necessarily ices that we normally think of. Right at the upper layers of the atmosphere, yes, it's very cold, but as you start going deep, it's thousands of degrees. And so when I say ices, this is very weird. It's water ice that might be 1,000 degrees or 2,000 degrees, but it's under such incredible pressure that it forms a solid ice-like uh, ice -like composition. So deep below that, we think there could be some kind of core. Most likely there is, made of rock or you know, a mixture of rock and ice. But at this point, we can't be positive just because we don't have the data to back it up. In terms of size, uh, 
It's about four times the size of the Earth. So, you know, sort of midway here between Jupiter on the left and Earth on the right makes kind of an interesting midpoint, you know, to sort of when you talk about comparative planetology, if you want to represent each of the planets equally, you know, is there sort of some kind of gradient between them that, you know, we can talk about Uranus as some sort of missing link in planets. Um, it's very far from the sun. It's 19.2 AU. What's an AU? It's the distance between Earth and the sun. So this is almost 20 times further from the sun. That means that sunlight is very weak out here. It's only 1 400th as strong. Because it's so far, it takes a very long time to orbit the sun, about 84 years. Um, and it makes you know, one full revolution around the sun in that time. And here's the very weird part about Uranus. It has this axial tilt of 97 degrees. No other planet is like this. This essentially means the planet is flipped on its side, right? So uh, I think you can make out here. So for part of its orbit, this is actually the north pole. I put north in quotes because that doesn't make a lot of sense when you're talking about a planet on its side. But here we have the north pole. And so during solstice, uh, so when the sun is at its highest, if you were a resident of Uranus, at solstice, the sun is shining down almost directly onto the north pole. As the planet rotates, this means that essentially one hemisphere, the northern hemisphere in this case, is going to have permanent daylight, while the southern hemisphere is in permanent darkness, right? It's only 21 years later, once it's made it a quarter of the way around its orbit, that the sun is now shining down on the equator. Everywhere on the planet actually gets a regular day and night cycle. Now, you know, something similar happens here on Earth. Of course, we're only tilted 23 degrees or 23 and a half degrees. And that's what leads to us having summer and winter. But you can imagine if the Earth were tilted this much, summer and winter would be crazy. I mean, the, the extent of the seasons would be, you know, unlike anything we've ever seen. So this suggests that there might be some kind of interesting seasons that go on in Uranus. Now, why it is that Uranus actually has this 97 degree tilt is still a big mystery in science. We don't know the answer to that. Now, originally, in the 60s and 70s, people started coming up with this idea of giant impacts, right? You know, it's, it's pretty well established at this point. The reason that Earth has such a large moon while none of the other terrestrial planets do is because we got hit by something, and something big, right? But this is one of those cases where when you have a hammer, everything starts looking like a nail, right? Uh, so, you know, why did the dinosaurs die out? Well, we got hit by something. That's probably true. Uh, why is Venus rotating backwards? It probably got hit by something. Why is Miranda, a weird clift terrain, got hit by something? Iapetus has a two-tone black and white color to it, got hit by something. Uh, right, you get the idea. So naturally, Uranus fell into this as well, right? Why is Uranus tipped on its side? Well, it got hit by something. Uh, and that explanation stayed for maybe 20 years or so. And then around about the 90s, we started to get computers that were good enough that could actually try to simulate, like, well, let's do a simulation and let it get hit by something. Uh, and it turns out that in order to impart enough energy to tip the entire planet over on its side, you have to destroy the planet in the process. <laughs> so chances are that's probably not what happened. Um, Pendulum is swinging back now, uh, back towards ideas of gradual change as opposed to very cataclysmic change. And so people are starting to think that there was some kind of resonance. You know, there's, there's models of the solar system at this point that actually indicate that once very long ago, four billion years ago when our solar system was first forming, that Uranus and Neptune were actually, had actually changed places. Uranus was actually the furthest planet. Neptune was closer in. And due to various Orbital, orbital resonances that occurred between Jupiter and Saturn. This was thrown into chaos at some point. Uranus and Neptune actually switched places, we think, 
we're not positive at this point, we think, and somehow possibly within some of these interactions as the two pass close to each other, it could have imparted enough angular momentum to tip Uranus on its, to tip Uranus on its side without destroying it. Again, we're not sure, and to some extent this kind of science is, I don't want to say poo-pooed, but it's a little bit like a just-so story. How did the camel get its hump? You know, how did Uranus flip on its side? We, we don't know, and it's very possible we won't ever know, but it's interesting nonetheless. But either way, we are left with a planet that has this incredible axial tilt, 97 degrees. This is going to have a lot of ramifications for its climate. So what does it actually look like? Well, uh, if the telescope can manage to be open tonight, which doesn't look likely, but uh, you might see something that looks kind of like this. I don't know if the color is really coming through, but it's kind of a greenish blue color. Um, so when viewed, oh, great. Uh, so as viewed from Earth, because it is so distant and only four times the size of the Earth, right, we're talking about you know, an object that's 600 times smaller than the moon as viewed from the surface of the Earth, right? So you can tell it's not a star, that's, that's definite, but it's not a whole lot more than that. It looks like, you know, kind of a tiny turquoise ball. You know, maybe you can say there's a cloud feature here, some kind of whiteness, but it's tough to say. And this was pretty much our view of Uranus up until the 1980s. So, let's talk about the Voyager mission. Now, Back in the mid-60s, uh, when Apollo, the Apollo mission was in full swing, uh, there was actually a lowly graduate student, uh, yes, they do have real jobs, uh, who figured out that the planets were entering into a perfect conjunction such that you could do what's called a grand tour of the planets. Essentially, you could leave Earth in the late 70s, swing by Jupiter, use its gravitational assist to get you to Saturn, then swing by Saturn, use its gravitational assist to get you to Uranus, and then all the way to Neptune. Now, we had seen a little bit of Jupiter and, and Saturn before from the Pioneer missions, but you know, the optics weren't amazing, and you know, this would be you know, something unlike we'd ever done. And of course, Uranus and Neptune hadn't been visited at all. So twin spacecraft launched in 1977, uh, and lo and behold, uh, this is you know, the first view of every giant planet up close. And so people were naturally very excited about this. So 79 rolls around, and this is the view we get of Jupiter, and it is fantastic, right? I mean, this is what a gas giant should look like. I mean, you have these, you know, roiling bands of storms, you have winds crisscrossing the whole thing, you, know, you have these huge hurricanes, you have the great red spot, which actually to this day, we still don't know why it's red. That's a whole other unsolved issue. But uh, we, we can look at a spectrum of it, and we can tell what, exactly what kind of red it is. It just doesn't happen to correspond to anything we've measured on Earth yet. So uh, if there's any aspiring lab people, that's a good project for you. Uh, but point being, you can see all kinds of turbulence. You know, it looks like you know, clouds in your coffee when you add your cream. There's, you know, this is clearly an exciting place, right? So it passes, it passes Jupiter, it heads on to Saturn in 81. And Saturn, you know, of course you have the rings, which are fantastic. Uh, and Saturn's pretty hazy, but you know you can see you know there's still there's banding you know and if you kind of use your you know CSI enhance you know technology you know drive up the contrast you can see there are storms there too and there's a lot of turbulence as well. You have to look under the haze. As a matter of fact, this haze is not too different from. Uh, has anyone here ever been to LA before? Uh, I kid you not, actually, chemically speaking, it's kind of similar. Uh, so, uh, but if you look underneath the haze, you will see, you know, you know all kinds of uh, storms and whatnot. So this is cool, and you know, we're building up a good idea of what gas giants are like. So very excited for Uranus because, you know, Jupiter and Saturn we've seen before. No one's ever seen Uranus. What are we going to see? 1986 rolls around, and we get 
Ooh, yeah. <laughs> so that was a bit of a bummer. Uh, it is a turquoise ball, just like we see from Earth. So mind you, at this time, Uranus is just about at summer solstice. So the sun is shining down right here, which is right about where the North Pole is, right? And this is kind of confusing for us, right? I mean, I thought gas giants were these exciting places with storms and clouds and belts and winds whipping around. And this is, well, this is a downer, right? I mean, thankfully, there were some interesting moons to look at at Uranus. But you know, even when we use our cool CSI-enhanced technology, well, you know, you could see there's an North Pole there. You could see there's, you know, some kind of maybe a polar hood or something. Uh, I know people who, to this day, still debate if that's a cloud or not. Like they actually like that's no, that's just junk on the telescope. Uh, so, point being, okay, well, maybe Uranus and Neptune are just not interesting, right? They're really far out there. They're really cold. Maybe it's only Jupiter and Saturn that are exciting. So, this is the explanation we give until 1989. Voyager flies by Neptune. It's like, okay, well, that's, that's what a gas giant should look like, right? You know, you've got you know, all kinds of belts here. You've got clouds. You've got a storm. You actually have the dark spot, right? So as opposed to Jupiter, which has the great red spot, Neptune has the great dark spot. It's a huge circulating storm system, you know, and you can see, you know, in relief, these clouds are well above, you know, kind of this bluish area. I should mention, too, both Uranus and Neptune are, do have this similar bluish color because they have lots of methane. Uh, so, yeah, I know, methane on Uranus, ha, ha, ha. Uh, actually, methane is an odorless gas. Let me just dispel that myth right now. But uh, methane absorbs red light. And so as a result, when it reflects sunlight, all you're going to see is this kind of bluish green reflecting back. All the red has been absorbed. So this is normal. And as far as we know, Uranus and Neptune are pretty similar. So why is Uranus different? Well, uh, again, we're left with a just-so story. And this is how it went. So we need to understand something called equilibrium temperature. Now, this is the temperature you would expect a body to be if it were heated by nothing but the sun. And that's it. There's no extra source of heat. There's no extra trapping of heat. Here's an example, Earth. If Earth was only heated by the sun, then we would expect it to be 255 Kelvin, which is about negative 18 degrees Celsius, which is, give or take, about zero degrees Fahrenheit, average over the entire planet. That is not the case, and that is very good because that's a really cold planet. Um, it turns out that there's about 33 degrees of warming that happens because of the greenhouse effect. So if equilibrium temperature will not get you the right temperature for Earth because you're not accounting for the greenhouse effect. Similarly, for, for Venus, Venus would actually be even colder, right? Venus would be something like, I think it's 216 Kelvin, so even colder than Earth because it's so reflective. The clouds are so bright and reflective. But you, know, you have you know, 500 degrees of greenhouse effect there. And so as a result, you know, this is warming that you're not accounting for when you're just talking about equilibrium temperature. So, uh, and I should say it's a good thing we have that 33 Kelvin of warming here on Earth because, you know, otherwise life couldn't survive, oceans would freeze over, it'd be bad. We're just worried now that maybe that's getting a little out of control and a little too much. But, uh, so when we look at Jupiter, we calculate its equilibrium temperature, we just say, okay, how far is it from the sun? How reflective is it? How much light is it actually absorbing? What we come up with is an equilibrium temperature of 113 Kelvin. And again, Kelvin is just a different temperature scale, like Fahrenheit or Celsius. This just measures how hot it is above absolute zero. So it should be 113 Kelvin. Uh, that's something like negative uh, 250 degrees Fahrenheit, rough, rough neighborhood. Uh, actually, it's 124.4 Kelvin. 
there is an excess of heating on Jupiter. It actually generates heat from the interior. So when Jupiter was formed, it was collapsing down from the gas cloud. That's giving up energy, right? You know, if you imagine something falling, that, that gives up energy in the process. In essence, you can almost think of Jupiter as still falling inwards a little bit, compressing down, heating up, and it gives off that heat. And we see it in the atmosphere. We actually see it's a little bit hotter than we would otherwise expect it to be. Saturn, same thing. We would expect it to be 83 Kelvin. It's actually 95. So similar kind of mechanism here, although people have also said there's some differentiation that goes on. Saturn's made of mostly hydrogen and helium, like all the gas giants. But it turns out that if they're well mixed, that's actually a higher energy state than if you have helium on the bottom and hydrogen on top, right? Helium's denser than hydrogen. If you could separate those out, that's a source of energy right there. And so people talk about a sort of helium rain, where the two are separating out, generating a source of energy. Still, jury's still out if that one flies. We thought it was good, now there's some evidence maybe it's not, but either way, Saturn has a source of heating as well. Let me skip over here for a second. Neptune, 48 Kelvin, uh, or you, that's what you would expect it to be. It's actually 59.3. Neptune is hotter than it should be. Again, another huge unsolved problem in planetary science. Nobody knows why. Uh, if you figure it out, let me know. I'm really interested. Uh, you know, people have talked about, oh, maybe it got hit by something. Yeah, that one again. Uh, <laughs> uh, they've even talked about, you know, there's radioactive heating, you know, that could happen, but none of these theories are really panning out yet. N Neptune has a mysterious source of internal heating, but either way, skip back for a second. Uranus, 60 Kelvin is what we'd expect it to be. Actually measured 59.1. It is pretty much exactly its equilibrium temperature. There is no excess source of heat that's coming out from, from Uranus. There's some question, maybe it's in there, and it's just trapped underneath. Eh, thermodynamics doesn't work out really well if you want to do that. Maybe it just doesn't have any internal heat. Maybe whatever it is that's heating up Neptune doesn't exist on Uranus. But either way, there's no internal heat. And so people say, oh, okay, well, this makes sense now, right? You know, all these other planets have really exciting dynamics and storms and belts and clouds because they have all this excess heat and that's energy to do stuff, right? You know, when you model climates, you actually start to begin to think of a planet like an engine, right? You know, and heat is what goes into that. And, you know, wind and all that, that's the work that comes out of your engine. So, you know, Earth is in some ways an engine. You know, you have the sun heating up the equator and trying to cool, you know, the planet's trying to cool down, you know, more at the poles. And then this generates winds and all this kind of exciting stuff. It's, it is in many ways, you know, similar to what you would call a heat engine. Uh, in Uranus, there is just no fuel there to get stuff going. So, you know, people kind of went with this explanation for a while. And they just said, okay, well, I guess Uranus is just kind of a bummer planet. There's no heat. And that's how things stood for a while, until. Uh, 1994 to 1998, Eric Karkoschka, who also works right across the street, uh, started doing an observing campaign of Uranus with the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, mostly, he was just trying to track moons as well as rings. Uh, and so this is a little movie he made. He's great at making movies. I love these. Uh, and this is what we're looking at in infrared light, right? And so you zoom in, you can see like, oh, actually, it's kind of interesting. There are, you know, maybe here and there, you can see, oh, there, there's a cloud, you know, going by. And like, you could definitely make out that polar cap now. You know, that's, that's kind of different than what we saw. So it starts speeding up a bit, uh, get, getting going. Over time, you can actually start to see, so again, this is the North Pole. You'll start to see it rotate to the left as uh, we start going very fast in time here, and Uranus starts making its way around slowly around the sun in its 84-year orbit. So we're now looking at a slightly different angle of it. 
exposing areas that have never seen the sunlight for you know, 40 years or so. Uh, and lo and behold, there's all kinds of stuff going on there. Right? There is something that has been going on on the night side of Uranus. We were never able to see it with Voyager, because right? it was dark, it was nighttime. Uh, and the infrared capabilities of Voyager just weren't there at that time. And we're talking about 1970s technology. Right? Uh, and lo and behold, there is stuff that's going on. So I'll get into this in a bit. Uh, we look at an equinox, 2006. So this is the first time in 42 years that the sun is shining down on Uranus's equator. Uh, and lo and behold, this actually is invisible light. It's very similar to the Voyager image. Uh, and lo and behold, uh, there's bands, right? There's bands. And what's really exciting is this. It's hard to see because, you know, we're, Uranus is still small even through the Hubble. But that's a dark spot, just like Neptune had. There are storms on Uranus now, in addition to clouds and bands. Something is going on. This planet is waking up, you know. If I compare that with what we saw before, there is clearly something afoot. So. What's going on here? Well, let me talk for a second about the jet stream. OK, so on Earth, you guys maybe have heard the jet stream. Uh, here in Arizona, not as much. But say if you fly from here to New York, you'll actually get there faster than if you fly from New York back to here. This is because there's what they call the prevailing westerly winds. Winds flow from west to east across America. And if I can repeat this, uh, you can see you know, there is kind of this general flow from west to east. Uh, you can see the same thing in the southern hemisphere, and then at the equator, it kind of tends to flow backwards, right? So uh, if you ever wonder why, when you look at your airplane ticket, why is one flight longer than the other? This is why, because most of the time, you get a tailwind when you go to the east, and you know, you're facing a headwind when you go to the west. Well, it turns out these jet streams are not unique to Earth. Lots of planets have jet streams. In fact, if you have an atmosphere, and it's pretty decently sized, chances are you have some kind of jet streams. Um, we call them zonal winds, alternately. Here on Jupiter, you can see there's about 20 of them. So as opposed to Earth's two or three, depending on how you count it, uh, we could see just tons of zigzagging back and forth here. This is actually a profile of that zigzagging. So stuff that's over here is heading east, stuff that's over there is heading west, right? And you can see it sort of lines up with some of the zones and belts on Jupiter as well. Um, so interesting thing is, is that there's all kinds of you know, cool equations, I won't get into them, don't worry. Uh, there's all kinds of cool equations that talk about how, depending on how sharp these jets are, how quickly they change with latitude, like there's one really skinny one right here. If it's too skinny, it can actually, it's unstable and will start spinning off storms. And vice versa, there's actually indications that storms, you know, in the, in the correct conditions, can do just the opposite and start feeding jets. There's some indications the Great Red Spot does that. For a while, we actually thought the Great Red Spot was starting to die out, it was starting to shrink. Uh, this was maybe five, six years ago, you know, for, based on measurements, it was getting smaller and smaller. We thought maybe in 50, 60 years there wouldn't be a great red spot, which would be weird because it's been there for, well, as long as we've been able to see it, almost 400 years. Uh, but it ate some other storms. Yes, they actually call it storm cannibalism. What a cheery topic. Uh, it ate some other storms. It looked like it expanded again, so at least it's safe for a little while. But um, so there's some indication there's this feedback between storms and jets. So, uh, it's possible that if somehow the jets can change on Uranus, you can start spinning off storms. So here's what zonal winds on Uranus look like. This actually is pretty familiar. This, this looks a lot like Earth, right? In the northern hemisphere, you have this strong west to east jet. Right about the equator, it's east to west again. And then down here, it's west to east again. So you know, it's actually fairly similar to Earth. Even though a planet is spinning a bit faster than Earth, it's significantly larger, it still is, 
has some interesting comparisons. Of course, big difference here is if you look at the actual wind speed, uh, 200, 300 meters per second, that's like 500 miles per hour. So yeah, uh, we don't see that on Earth. It's about 10 times weaker, but it is interesting. The shape is generally the same. So uh, our current working theory, or at least hypothesis, is that it's possible these winds have changed between the solstice, when they were first measured, and equinox in 2007. And that could end up creating, uh, creating storms and things like that. Um, I should mention too, again, there's no internal heat to govern atmospheric changes, right? You know, it's not like there's this constant source of heat coming out. So as a result, it's really just sunlight that's driving what they call the planetary energy balance. You know, the planet is the only source of heat it gets is from the sun. If that's changing wildly across the surface of the planet, or the winds of the planet, the cloud tops, uh, that's going to change what you end up getting. Uh, so here's what we did. So we took a climate model. Uh, and so specifically, this is, uh, we use the EPIC model. Uh, this has been used before for things like Jupiter's great red spot. So this is a simulation of Jupiter's great red spot. Um, now, believe it or not, it's actually, well, I'll do that one more time just because it looks cool. Uh, okay. Um, Believe it or not, it's actually a lot easier to do climate models of giant planets than it is to do climate models of Earth. That's because Earth is the only planet that has clouds, and oceans, and land, and ice caps, and mountains, and you know all this stuff, right? Uh, all of these things feed back on each other, right? There's rain, there's snow, you know, and each one, you know, helps. You know, there's what they call a nonlinear equation. Each one somehow interacts with every other one. For gas giants. You got, you know, gas, and that's it. You got atmosphere. You know, I guess if you want to do clouds, you can do clouds as well. But uh, you know, pretty much that's it. So if you know where the Great Red Spot is today, and you know how fast it's moving, a year from now you can figure out where it is. I don't think any hurricane forecaster on Earth could talk about where there's going to be a hurricane next year, and exactly pinpoint it. So. In a lot of ways, it's much easier to do this. And so basically, it's just a big grid of points. We just talk about you know, what, is the, what is the atmosphere doing at each of these grid points? And you know, how, is, how is momentum being exchanged? And how is energy moving? And how are the winds getting sped up or slowed down? Um, however, what no one has really bothered to do before is add sunlight. It's not really that important on the other gas giant planets because you know, I mean, they have their own internal heat. That's what drives the, the dynamics there, right? You know, all these belts and clouds and zones and things. In this case, though, sunlight is all that matters on Uranus. And so we had to put that in and create it. So what do we get? If we start from a state of zero winds, so here we see days going past. And this is during equinox. So we start with zero winds, and so these are zonal winds. So again, jet streams at one bar. So you know, same atmospheric pressure is here in this room, give or take. Uh, here, red are what we say prograde winds, the west to east jets. Blue are east to west jets. You can see, you know, at first it was kind of chaotic, uh, and then it starts settling out. And you can start to see, you know, in the north hemisphere you get these west to east jets. Southern Hemisphere, you get west to east jets in the equator, east to west. Well, this is pretty good. This is kind of similar to what we see on, on Uranus, right? Thing is, though, it's not always at equinox, right? Matter of fact, most of the time it's not. Uh, and this is kind of a little track of it. You know, we get kind of wide jet streams here, but you can see there's kind of a similar shape starting to form here. Um, what if instead we shine the sun down at the pole? Well, here you can see. The days are barely varying. Essentially, this hemisphere is constant sunlight. This one's constant darkness. And very quickly, we get a very different zonal wind pattern, right? Uh, 
this is now in the northern hemisphere, the summer hemisphere, uh, because we could talk about summer and winter here since we're not at equinox. Summer hemisphere, we see that uh, there is an east to west flow, and then as soon as you cross the equator, there's a west east flow. So it's weird, you get, go from what was a symmetric flow to what now is anti-symmetric, so the opposite between both hemispheres. And this settles in and you know, essentially takes root and doesn't really go away for a while. But these are both from states of zero wind, right? You know, we, there's, we can't go to the lab and make Uranus and say, okay, slow down all your winds, okay, now speed up, you know, and figure out what's going on. You know, Uranus is an active dynamic place that already has winds happening. So what happens if we start with the winds that we see, and we start going through seasons? So this is different uh, yearly cycles. So, you know, sun's shining on the north, north pole, south pole, sun's shining on the north pole, equinox, southern solstice, right. Uh, and you, these are the winds that end up, we end up seeing. You can see there's this rocking fashion that kind of occurs back and forth in the zonal winds. So again, you've got uh, this southerly west to east jet, northerly west to east jet. And what's really changing here seems to be this equator jet. There's some question if this is enough to create new storms. We're still working on this. Uh, we don't know. We think it might be. It might be enough that you can start getting, you know, skinny enough jets here. The interesting thing is, though, what we do reproduce and that it is seen and only recently seen is this kind of weird asymmetry right around the equator. You know, it's not a kind of perfect loop. And so we do think we're onto something here. So one other thing here. Let me talk about convection. This is something else our model can do. Now, you've probably heard the term for convection oven, or a uh, common thing people talk about is lava lamps, right? Um, so this is vertical motion in the presence of a heat gradient. So if you've ever had a lava lamp or seen one working, you know, basically you have mineral oil and wax. Yes, that's the mystery of what a lava lamp is filled with. Uh, and if you put a hot bulb underneath, it'll start to melt the wax. Stuff will start to heat up, and as we know, hot stuff rises. It rises up to the top where it's cold, it then cools down, it then begins to sink, right? Uh, see a similar phenomenon if you're ever boiling water. Just before it boils, before it starts making bubbles, you sprinkle a little pepper on the top, you can actually see there's motions that are going on inside your pot of you know, cycling like this. It doesn't need to boil to actually see this motion. Something else we're probably all too familiar with here, monsoon rains, right? Essentially, the sun has been beating down on the desert floor for months, you know, finally it gets hot enough. You start getting rising motions from that surface and you'll start creating clouds, right? Uh, essentially, you can start bringing in moist air from the Gulf of Mexico, from the Bay of Baja, even the Pacific. That moist air starts to rise along with everything else. And as it rises, it gets colder, that air gets super saturated and you start to form clouds. We finally get rain, it cools off here. Everyone is a little happier for a little while. Right, uh, so essentially, you know, here we see actual thunderstorms being created by convection. The thing is, in all these cases, how we're used to convection operating is because you heat it from the top, right? You know, you heat something on the bottom and you know, it's cold on the top and so it rises. It can work in the opposite way too. You can cool it at the top and you can start convection going as well. What convection actually needs is a hot bottom and cold top. It doesn't care if the bottom's made hotter or the top's made colder. All it cares about is that there is a difference in temperature between top and bottom, and it has to be hot on the bottom and cold on the top. So what happens when we put convection into our model? So here we have South Pole, Equator, North Pole. Here's the sun moving over, and now the colors are temperatures. So blue is cold. And we're cooling down so much, that little burst right there, that was convection. 
right there as well. There's some convection. So as the sun starts leaving areas, it cools down enough, uh, or it doesn't return fast enough, right? See a little here pretty soon. Yeah, there's a little burp right there, right? Essentially, it's cooling down fast enough that the atmosphere has to replenish it with heat from below. Thus, the sun doesn't get there fast enough, and so we should actually expect to see, and this seems to be a recurring theme, you know, where uh, it's kind of just before the sun starts illuminating an area, there should be convection, right? And we should start to see a whole bunch of little tiny clouds forming, similar to this. We should see a whole bunch of this uh, forming at one of the poles just as it's emerging into daylight, right? You know, so as, just as it passes equinox, we start to see it again for the first time in 42 years, and it sees sunlight. It's been cooling down this whole time. There's been convection. We should see clouds. So I was super excited with this result, right? Uh, and, uh, I was going to this big conference a few months ago, you know, and I was all excited to tell people about this, like, we should be seeing clouds pretty soon. Uh, I was the second talk of the big Uranus panel, you know, all these world's experts, not counting me, uh, but, you know, all these world's experts. Uh, and first talk was world's expert, you know, who's the observationalist, right? He's the guy who uses the big telescopes to look at Uranus. And he's there to report. Uh, so, We've been looking at Uranus, and so this is the North Pole now rotated around. This is the South Pole that we've seen for the first time. We've been looking at Uranus, and uh, you know, it's really weird. You know, we just see this pole that's just rotated into view for the first time in 42 years, and when we use our little CSI enhanced techniques, we see all these little dotting things. We think they're clouds, right? So this is great. I mean, this is exactly what a modeler wants to see. And so, you know, I felt all cool, you know, going up afterwards, like, I can tell you why that is. Uh, right. Um, a little bit of a bummer making a prediction five minutes after someone actually makes the observation, but you know, whatever, I'll take what I can get. I'll take what I can get. So, but this is really exciting, you know? So we are actually seeing definite changes on this planet that at one point was so boring and now seems to be waking up. So, I'll leave off with my conclusions. Uranus, only sometimes a boring planet. You know, maybe as it heads towards the next solstice, it'll start becoming boring again. Uh, that's a shame because people have now been starting to talk about doing a dedicated Uranus mission, right? So we have Cassini right now, you know, it's going around Saturn. Uh, we have, we had Galileo, which, went, which orbited Jupiter. People have been talking about orbiting Uranus with a whole new mission. The problem is it's expensive. Uh, so I don't know if you've heard, there's some problems with the economy right now or something. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, uh, NASA's budgets are not great. So uh, we're still pushing for it, but we'll see. Uh, but it would be nice. It gives us a lot of data about, you know, a planet that we don't really understand too well. Uh, again, as I said, it has this extreme axial tilt. Why it's tilted, we're still not sure. But it definitely seems to lead to, you know, some kind of strong seasons. It looks like it has these active cycles, you know, and then dormant cycles. And, you know, it seems to be entirely controlled by where the sunlight is falling on the planet, combined with the fact that there's no internal heat to drive any kind of mechanics or <coughs> dynamics. Um, Perhaps the zonal winds change from season to season, at least they do in our models, and there's starting to be more and more evidence as observers can measure the zonal wind speeds. Uh, they do this by tracking clouds. It's a very, very uh, tedious process, so I feel for them. But they measure clouds and you know, track them over time and see what the wind at every latitude is. There's some indications that it may actually be changing. Zonal winds change from season to season, uh, causing storms advanced form. Uh, and then also it seems that there's convection that happens in kind of this early spring, just as a pole starts to come into view. You know, it's been cooling for 40 years. And finally, uh, you know, there's enough convection, you know, there's enough of a heat gradient between, you know, hotter, deeper down and 
cold higher up, that uh, you get these storms that start to swell and you know, should make all these thunderstorms, and we do in fact see that, and that's very new results. So uh, with that, I will open it up for questions. Thank you very much, Michael. We have plenty of time for questions. So please raise your hand if you'd like to ask a question. So the data that most of the astronomers and scientists study, is it like the older data that came from those missions, you know, 20 plus years ago? Uh, or is it more recent data that's observed through telescopes? And if so, what kind of telescopes? Infrared? Right. Which ones? Um, so it's a combination of both at this point. Uh, you know, nothing's going to give us data as good as what Voyager had. Even though it was 70s era instruments, nothing can compete with being right there at the planet taking measurements. I mean, that was invaluable. But uh, on the other hand, uh, now that telescopes have really come along, you know, we have something called adaptive optics at this point. Uh, so essentially, you have these bendable mirrors, right? You know, in, in the actual. Uh, telescope train itself. Not the main mirror usually, it's usually further down the optical train, but these mirrors can bend and they bend and shift up to like a hundred times a second or sometimes even a thousand in some of the very latest, you know, groundbreaking new ones. Uh, and essentially you monitor how the, how the atmosphere is, uh, is turbulent, you know, essentially what causes stars to twinkle. And this thing essentially does the exact opposite, you know, 100 times a second, 1,000 times a second. So you could, it's almost an anti-twinkle device. And it suddenly allows us to get these amazing quality images. Uh, and that's, I believe, actually, that's how this one was captured, was with adaptive optics on, uh, that was with the Keck telescope. This is in infrared. So again, infrared detectors have come a long way as well. And so that's also definitely helped us uh, improve stuff that we see from the ground. You know, Hubble Space Telescope imaging has also been great. You know, earlier I showed, you know, when we first saw Hubble at, uh, you know, a as it was coming around to Equinox and then at Equinox, those are Hubble images. Problem is Hubble is very oversubscribed. There's lots of people who want to use it and, uh, you know, for every possible thing in astronomy, you know, from galaxies down to asteroids. So. Uh, it can be difficult to get time on that. So it's good that we're starting now to enter an era where we can start to see, uh, see actual features on Uranus just using uh, Earth-based telescopes that have technology that's good enough to finally allow us that kind of thing. We have another question up here. Yeah. I noticed you were talking about those convections seem to kind of follow the sun around. Is that effect analogous to like the, the dawn and dusk breezes you see here? Right, uh, sort of not really. So this, this also has to do with, um, right, in that case that would actually be winds that would move towards the sun and away from the sun. We do, we're not seeing that so much, like winds that move across latitudes. Part of the reason is when you have really, really strong zonal winds, you know, essentially what I was talking about, you know, these 400, 500, you know, mile per hour winds, that essentially prevents a lot of motion and a lot of energy from being transferred in the north-south direction. It acts as a barrier to that. Um, but the temperature is kind of similar in that sense. It's just that, uh, you know, it's something like, you know, 40-year-long, you know, day and then a 40-year-long night, right? So uh, in that case, you know, it, it is kind of similar. So, yeah. Another question here. Yes. So when um, Uranus is, like, facing the sun, like, what First of all, I have two questions. Okay. Once, doesn't it like, is, it, is there only sun hitting it like once every 40 years or like 84 years? Because like, 
So then wouldn't that mean like the other part that there isn't sun hitting? Like wouldn't wouldn't the seasons be like like isn't that when it's in equilibrium? So like there wouldn't really be seasons. Like I don't really understand how there's seasons or seasons. Okay. So uh this is the basic idea. So imagine this is the North Pole right here, right? Um the sun is shining down, it's rotating like this, right? So the North Pole isn't changing, right? This, this North Pole stays the same. Stuff is rotating around the edge here, you know, with the North Pole facing, always kind of facing towards the sun. That means half of this is always going to be facing the sun when it's at solstice. The other half is going to be in permanent darkness, right? It's only... 20 years later, now the, now the North Pole is over here, right? The North Pole is always pointing kind of down into the lower left in this case. So now the North Pole is pointing down to the lower left, and again, stuff is rotating. You know, you can kind of imagine moving from lower right to upper left. Uh, in that case, now you're going to get day-night cycles on the entire planet. So the times where the planet is in total darkness, or like half of that planet is in total darkness, are there seasons? Well, if you think about it, every planet is always in half of every planet is always in total darkness, right? Yeah. So Earth right now, we happen to be on the side that's in total darkness. It's just that, you know, a few hours from now, we're, we're going to see the sunrise. On Uranus, at least if you're at solstice, that's not going to happen for another many, many, many years yeah. because the sun's going to move around, you know, the point where it's actually hovering over Uranus. Think of it that way. Do you have a second question? No. no. Okay. okay. We have a question up here. Thank you. How sensitive is your mathematical model of the climate to the composition of, of the planet, the, the gas composition, and how well known is the gas composition? Uh, not very and not well. Uh, <laughs> so, right, there have been some interesting results coming out of this. So, unlike Earth, where clouds are made of water, right, our atmosphere is made of mostly nitrogen, clouds are made of mostly water, you know, that means that, you know, the clouds are actually, you know, quite a bit lighter than the surrounding atmosphere. On Uranus, and actually all the gas giants, uh, you know, in this case, the clouds are made of methane, which is quite a bit heavier than the hydrogen surrounding atmosphere. This is going to introduce some kind of drag effect, and they've only been just starting to uh, get simulations now of what this does. We put it into our model co correctly, I think, <laughs> uh, as far as I know, but we need to do sensitivity tests because uh, there's one research group that recently showed they were trying to do Neptune's dark spot. And the interesting thing about Neptune's dark spot, I didn't show an animation of it, but you know, it's kind of this big dark spot, kind of roils over time, you know, kind of shifts around. The thing is they couldn't get the right period of that shifting. You know, it was shifting too fast. It's only when they added in the fact that methane is a much heavier gas, you can almost think of it as having drag, you know, uh, that it sort of slowed down the spot. And essentially, it, you know, it started roiling much slower at the correct rate that we see. So this is going to have an effect for sure, but you know exactly how uh, how that happens plays out in our model. Again, we think we have it right. We've put in the proper masses. One thing we haven't done, which we probably should do, is uh, change those masses and see how it actually changes the circulation on the planet. Do we have any other questions? We have one, down, one here and then one down there. When you said you saw the dark side of the planet for the first time, I noticed that there were like red spots and some white and stuff. Do you have any idea of what it is yet that's going on there? Uh, I think that was the infrared image. Was it this one or no? You had that infrared image that I think was colored. Oh, okay. Red. Okay. 
Right. So uh, from that, that, was, that was from HST. the movie. That was from the movie. Uh, here we go. You were talking about this animation, possibly. Uh, so right. So I should be clear that red stuff. Uh, this is in infrared light. So this is not a kind of light that our eyes can see. Um, so that red is just happens to correspond to uh, something that's further from what we can see. Now, why it is that it's in a different color than um, than the light on the what had been the summer hemisphere is actually a good question. Um, part of it is due to temperatures, but not so much. A larger part is probably due to chem chemical makeup. So uh, people talk about hydrocarbons on uh, on Uranus, and so there's you know a variety of different things. Methane is one example. There's probably other ones that people are just now starting to detect. Each one can kind of have its own uh, absorption spectrum in the infrared, so it'll kind of make different colors, and so as a result. Uh, you'll end up seeing, you know, different colors across here. So I think I think this is what you were talking about, right? You know, essentially this this red stuff over here. Yeah, those big red blotches yeah. there. Yeah, and so and so, you know, this is this color here is really a combination of not just the clouds, but also hazes that are overlying it. Any other weird hydrocarbons that are getting in the way. In this case, there may be, you know, some kind of difference between, and we know there is, you know, some kind of difference between the hydrocarbons on each hemisphere. You know, some, something about being in winter in these very cold temperatures changes what the actual chemical makeup of the planet on that side is. And that shift is enough to actually change the colors in the infrared. So I'm going to follow up on that, but any chance those blotches could be like clouds or storms of some right, sort? Right, so they are definitely clouds. They're they are, clouds, they are okay. They're methane clouds. All right. I'm sorry if I didn't make that clear. Okay. So they, they are methane clouds. You also see some here, but in addition, all that light has to pass through a bunch of other layers that are in the stratosphere of the planet. Okay. And so what, what the composition of that stratosphere probably changes between the two hemispheres. We have a question down here. Yeah, you were talking about... Um, as opposed to catastrophism, for, to explain the axial tilt of Uranus, you um, proposed more of a gradual approach. Um, is it possible that the axial tilt of Uranus is still changing, or what, what has caused it to remain static at 97 degrees? Right. Um, as far as we know, we don't think so. Uh, you know, a lot of stuff, <laughs> I shouldn't say this hands down. Uh, but for the most part, most things are relatively stable in our in our solar system now. You know, we've gone for you know four and a half billion years now. You know, anything that can change probably will. That's not entirely true. From what we can tell, for example, Mars's axial tilt has changed greatly over what is probably the most recent history. You know, um, so far as we can tell, Uranus is relatively stable on that 97 degrees. Though, another theory that's pretty common is in addition to uh, in addition to having some kind of gravitational perturbation with Neptune, it's possible that at that time, with a three, what they call a three-body interaction, uh, essentially you know a bunch of uh, gravitational masses all flying around, uh, there may have been a large moon that was ejected from Uranus as well. So it may have had a moon that was ejected, losing some of that angular orbital momentum, some of that orbital energy may have helped push it over on its side as well. So we're not sure. So we don't think it's going to lose any more moons anytime soon. Uh, but again, you know there are planets like Mars, you know, where, where we see the axial tilt changing. And, you know, there's indication in the past it's gone anywhere from a zero degree axial tilt, which means it has no seasons, uh, to possibly as high as 60 degrees, which means it have incredibly strong seasons. Uh, right You're now, talking about Mars or Uranus? Mars. Mars. Uh, Mars. Yeah, so right yeah. now I'm talking, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so Mars, yeah. 
Mars, Mars has gone anywhere from zero to 60. And so, uh, you know, right now it happens to be at 24, which is very similar to Earth just by coincidence. But, you know, unlike, unlike Earth, Mars doesn't have a stabilizing influence of a large moon. And so it ends up getting uh, torques. It ends up getting tugged by, say, you know, uh, Jupiter and the sun at different times and different parts of its orbit. And as a result, you know, this can lead to kind of wildly chaotic axial tilts. Any other questions? Yes, we'll take one more. Are the moon's orbits tilted as well? Are they, are they equatorial? Type they are. So the whole system is tilted. So the, yes. the moons have those long uh, seasons as well. Yes. Uh, the rings are also tilted. So uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The moons also have you know similar kind of odd seasons. So. Yeah. All right. I would like to remind you. Take note, because normally we do these lectures every other Monday, but two weeks from tonight is November 11th. It's Veterans Day, and I don't like to schedule on days when the university will be closed. So our next lecture is actually three weeks from tonight, November the 18th, and it's gonna be another book signing. Um, professor um, Paul Bogard is an English professor from James Madison University in Virginia, but he has a new book out called The End of Night, Searching for Natural Darkness in an Age of Artificial Light. And so he'll tell us what that means and we'll again have refreshments out in the main lobby and a book signing afterwards. That's three weeks from tonight. I went and checked, it's still cloudy, so unfortunately the telescope is not open tonight. Have a safe trip home. Uh, I will stamp student assignments down here and let's thank Dr. Sussman one more time. <laughs>